Ken, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be here. My pleasure. I know you're jet lagged. You just came in the other day. Right. You had a big dinner last night. Yes. But I've been knowing you for what? How old is your oldest son? 22. 20, so 20 years I've known you almost. Yeah. Because I think you brought them in there when they were babies almost. Yeah. We were, we, we joined membership. I, w I want to say, geez, 98, 99 maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because we moved from Hong Kong after the, uh, after the handover in 97. That's right, that's yeah. right. Wow. Let me ask, I like to start off with a lot of different, I'm trying to do this one a little bit different than I've done the ones in the past, but I still want to know some basic things, like where were you born? Honolulu. Honolulu. How old were you when you left Honolulu? Um, well, we used to come back every summer. My mom's Japanese. Okay. So we'd, we'd come here, uh, my sister and I, for the summers for a few weeks every year. And then after, um, Boulder. I went to Thunderbird for a couple of years, knowing I wanted an international business career. And uh, I moved here the first time, I think, in the early 90s. Okay. What about your father? Uh, growing up, he was here in Japan while my mother and my sister and I were in Hawaii. Okay. And he would come back every couple months uh, on Pan Am and, and um, come to see us for a couple weeks and come back here and work. He was running Cinerama Films at the time in, right? the, in the 60s and 70s. Where's he from? Uh, New Jersey. New Jersey, yeah. New Jersey guy. What's his ethnicity? Um, for many years, I thought burger. I thought we were German, but it turns out we're we're from Plotsk, Russia, which You're is okay. which is a, a suburb of Warsaw. Did he know that? Uh, we never talked about it, you know. But mm -hmm. it was during Euro football that my sister gave me um, our Ellis Island documents, and and instead of in the '40s coming here, it was actually in the 1890s that my family immigrated from the UK. Um, originally from Płotsk, Russia, the documents from Ellis Island say. So it turns out we're Polish. We're from a f suburb of Warsaw. Is that right? Well, mm. so, wait, so that's, of course, your father's side. But so when they came over, was your father's, was it your father's father and mother that came over? Yes, yeah. Was, okay, my so father was... So your grandparents? Is, yeah, my grandparents. My father was 25 years older than my mother when they met here in Tokyo. He's 25 years older than her. Okay, let me ask you this. Did your... Father, did you ever know your grandparents? No. Okay. Um, not, on, not on my dad's side, my mom's side, certainly, yes. All right. So how many siblings do you have? Uh, an elder sister by one year and uh, two older half-brothers from my dad's first marriage. Do you know them? Yeah, yeah we're close as a family, yes. Is it, he, kept, he made it that way? Um, no, they were actually estranged when my father moved here from J moved to Japan. It was, I think, through my mother and my elder half-brother's efforts that they and we continue to be very close as a family. My mother wanted us to be close to our siblings, and then growing up, we became close to my elder brother's children. So although we're, I'm their uncle, we're more like cousins in age. Because how old is your older, how many, how many years older is your older brother? Oldest same, brother? same age as my mother, in the, now, <laughs> in the, now in their 80s, yeah. And, and what about his brother? I uh, mean, well, your second? Yeah, my second, second is about 10 years younger than my elder brother. Okay, yeah. wow. Yeah, but it's, 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 it's great because, you know, now every Thanksgiving there's almost, you know, 19 or 22 burgers that get together every year in Kona. So we're, oh, you we're close as a family, yeah. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Have you brought your sons there? Oh, certainly, yeah. Oh, that's they, good. They, they, now we're on that next generation, of course, where my nephew's children are the same age as my, my children. So, yeah. Oh, that is neat. Yeah. That is neat. So growing up, what was it like for you? Do You grew up where? Did you in Honolulu. So in Honolulu. born and raised. Okay. Uh, Honolulu went to Punahou. Um, and then to Boulder for four years, and then Thunderbird International Business School for two. 
Wow, what made you decide to do that? Were you wait, what kind of student were you? Let's go through school first <laughs> of all. Because at school, when you were going through school, and first of all in Hawaii, there's such a mixture. I don't think there was ever any issue with you being, you know, Polish, not knowing that, and Japanese when you were growing up. Yeah, just you're just you're just howling. You're just howling. Papa Holly, right? Right. So everyone thought you were just really Hawaiian. Well, look, I mean, when you're in Hawaii, no one, when you leave Hawaii, people call you Hawaiian, but when you're in Hawaii, you're just, you know, a Japanese kid or Hapahali kid, yeah. Okay, all right, all right. So, were you more academic or were you more uh, sports-minded? Both. I played sports year-round, football, basketball, baseball, but, you know, Punahou is a tough academic environment, um, and, uh, I, yeah, I was never a surfer, always after school, went to athletics, and after athletics, um, yeah, you're studying at Punahou. Really? So to be cool there, you had to be get good grades, basically. Yeah, you know, Puno is interesting because it's it's a it's a college preparatory academy. So I think just like ASIJ would be here, you know, ninety nine percent of kids go on to college, and mm -hmm. sure enough, you get to college and you, you've been so well prepared that college is relatively easy compared to what you've done at Punahou. Is that right? Well, is that where Obama went? Yeah, yeah. same school. Yeah. My I think goodness. We've had a quite a, uh, we have quite a, a few yeah. some real illustrious people have yeah, gone there. Yeah. That's the top school in Hawaii. We like to think it is. I think there's one or two other institutions. What, what that, are the other ones? What are uh, the Iolani and Kamehameha mm -hmm. probably would say that they're, right. that they're right up there academically. But I think Puno puts out what I would say the most well-rounded kids, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, I think there's people that are, yeah, come out to be um, yeah, more, well, anyway. Professionally, I think that we've done very well. Yeah. When did you start to know, when did you know that Punahou was a good school? How old were you when you realized that it wasn't like all the other schools? I don't think that's something they yeah. tell the kids when they first come in. Like, do you no, know I think they, they do that. You know well, that you you're did? special to be there, yeah. It's well, a very... Well, how, how was that? What was it, well, it's, it's challenging again. I went to actually Iolani, the other school in kindergarten, but um, at the time, Iolani was an all-boys school. Okay. Punahou's co-ed, and my sister was at Punahou, so it was easier, I think, for transportation logistics to put us in the same school. But I think from an early age, you know that you're in a privileged uh, school environment, and you're told that you're special, or you're told that you're that you're uh, on the upside of the academic spectrum. So I think I think yeah. they do promote that. So you knew that all the all along. Yeah, we knew that. So when school. you saw the kids in other schools, what what was your attitude, kinda? Not so much in other schools, but I think there's a definite divide in in, in Hawaii between um, public and private schools, and um, you know your privilege. I mean, Punahou is the largest private kindergarten through 12 institution in the United States. So over 3,000 students, you know, I think the largest private school west of the Mississippi. It's been around since um, 1841, 1842. Established by? Uh, Hawaii missionaries. Okay. Yeah. And I think up until now, it's interesting because it was known to be the, the Haole school. Um, but now when you look, you know, when you look at the faces on campus, it's, it's like a Benetton world. It's a mix. I think much like Hawaii is, it's not separated Haole, Japanese, Hawaiian anymore. It's, it's very much a mix. Yeah, who can get in gets in. Yeah, and that's you know that's the beauty of Hawaii is that I think we are the most multicultural state in the union. I think there's no doubt about you've that. never sensed a sense of um, racial issues. Yeah, not belonging. Yeah, yeah. just there. That's yeah. beautiful. So, what did what were your sports that you really liked? Um, growing up, I played tennis, but then sure enough, I think around high school or maybe middle school, switched. Um, oh, I played baseball, and. Uh, Flag football as well, and then in high school, switched to the pads and and you know basketball, baseball. Just the you know back then it was you played three sports year round. It was kind of the standard thing to do, mm -hmm. unlike now where 
you focus on one sport probably by junior high. Mm. Um, yeah, it was different back then. Okay. Now, dad and mom, your mom was in your life all the way through. Was your dad in your life? They stayed together? Uh, they stayed together um, through high school time, but um, at the end they did separate. But growing up, my dad just wasn't around. So I think I was very lucky that I had a very strong mother who gave us a very strong home. But I think I give a lot of credit, like many of us who did go to Puno. Puno raises you. I think there's so many um, extracurricular activities, and it's a very warm and embracing academic environment. Um, and I think people that go there feel very um, fortunate to go there. But now as a parent, you realize how unique Punahou is mm -hmm. and how Punahou is not the best environment for many kids. And, and because it does push academics so strongly or mm -hmm. you have to act a certain way. Or, um, and I think there's just more awareness now of, of how academic institutions um, support the students that are there. Um, I th you know, there's probably a standard uh, mm -hmm. way of, of, of educating children, which I think Puno has evolved as well. Uh, but I think, yeah, now having children of my own, understanding that it one went for one year to Punahou, my elder one, Noah, uh, but the other one, Luca, that would not have been the right environment for him. Yeah. And, um, and uh, he went to boarding school when we moved back to the States. But they're both out of school now, right? Uh, they're both in university <coughs> now. Oh, they are? Um, There's no, yeah, Noah, the elder one, is, a, right. is at Thunderbird, followed me to Boulder and Thunderbird. And Luca, the younger one, is a junior at the University of Miami. What is he studying? Uh, they're both studying international business. Noah focused on finance and Lucas focused on marketing. Mm -hmm. And he's going to be spending January um, a, a term in France where he's focusing on, uh, on, on picking up and bettering his French. Well, Luca? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, he always speaks French. Um, they spoke some growing up, Luca not as well as Noah, mm -hmm. uh, but now um, Luca has spent the last two summers doing uh, homestay and, and, and he's really focused on bettering his French. Oh, that's neat. That's yeah. neat. Now, when you graduated from Thunderbirds, what did you graduate with? Uh, what they call a Master's in International Management, MIM degree. Okay. What made you decide to go that route? Um, I you know, I, I, I knew I wanted to be abroad. Um, I studied international business and finance at Boulder. But the placement um, office in Boulder, it's a public institution, it's a huge school, wasn't that strong. And um, uh, I had gotten a job in New York at the same time when I applied to Thunderbird, but I didn't do it in time to get in for the fall semester. So after I finished um, Boulder, I had six months, worked in New York doing that internship more or less, and then had school starting, Thunderbird starting January. Mm -hmm. And what a difference that year and a half made at, at Thunderbird. Um, again, schools at, or companies at the time were coming to recruit international business career-minded people. And, you know, being a Boulder with no opportunities and coming out of Thunderbird with six or seven job opportunities all abroad, excuse me, um, was night and day. So I, I came abroad right after I graduated from grad school and my whole life, the last 30 years has been international. So you were 21, 22? 22 at the time. 22 when you got out of school. Yeah. When, and I... I did study Japanese and that was my focus. Even though I, I spoke it go growing up, I, I took it, you need to have a proficiency test to graduate. Do we can read and write as well? Um, not, not kanji well okay, enough okay. for a paper, just hiragana, katakana. But mm -hmm. you know, this is an era when we're fortunate enough to have translators and you know, nowadays you gotta be on your own. It's impossible unless you're, you're, you're completely fluent. But I was fortunate. But I knew at the time that I didn't want to be a Japan expert. So out of the six jobs offers I had out of Japan, I had one in Korea. I took the career job. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, I took the career job. I, I knew that 
if I started my career at a Toshiba or a Sandoz Pharmaceutical, that I would be the salaryman taking the train to work, wearing a suit, and I would start my career. I would probably never have a chance to grow. So I, I actually envisaged myself 20 years forward being that salaryman, which I didn't want to be. So I took the job that was in Korea where it was more of a trading function. How did you know by that time? Had you been to Japan before? So yeah, certainly it's like going up, coming here every summer, every summer, taking the train, just knowing that you okay. get on that treadmill, be that cog in the machine. So you saw it. I, uh, I, yeah, I very clearly knew that, that that was a path that I did not want to go. Your father didn't talk to you about that? or was it? A, no, you know, know, he was an entrepreneur, and I think the entrepreneurial flame has always been there mm -hmm. in my mind. My, 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 my half-brother also is an entrepreneur. My dad worked for himself. So I knew that I probably needed some experience. Um, but ultimately, um, I saw that I would probably end up working for myself, and ultimately, I don't know, 10 or 15 years later, that's what ended, ended up happening. Wait, 10 or 15 years later after finishing college? Yeah, so I, I, I had a career, so okay. I, I took a job with, maybe you'll remember, a company called Wilson Suede & Leather, a leather <laughs> retailer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was running the, the sales purchase, purchasing office in Korea. Actually, that's I wasn't what, running That was it. your first job uh, in My Korea. first job, yeah. And then I m got promoted after a year and a half. Now, to, what year was this? What year is this? This is 89, 90. Okay, 89. Okay, that's just right after the bubble burst. The bubble was burst. Well, I take that back. 89, 90. Yeah. Wait, 87, yeah, 87 Boulder, 89 Thunderbird. Yeah, so yeah. 90. Um, I'm in Korea. Yeah. Yeah. This is just after the Olympics, actually, 89 after the Seoul Olympics. Yeah. We got promoted to run the Hong Kong office in 90. <laughs> Did that for a little bit. A year after being there? Yeah, a year, year and a half, yeah. <laughs> it was very fortunate. Um, then I'm sourcing leather goods out of China. Um, out of China then? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It would have been, but yeah, yeah. it just so, started. Yeah. It just started to come out, you yeah. Know? So I was, yeah, going into China early days. Um, um, and then I switched jobs, stayed in the garment business. I, I joined a company called Odyssey, okay. which was a garment manufacturer, down, down high-end leather, uh, high-end uh, functional garments. They own North Face, Sierra Designs, Head Sportswear. So. It was a branded company, it was a factory OEM maker, but making brands and also making for Japanese companies um, under their own brands. And that was uh, my first business coming back to Japan uh, in the sales, on the sales side. Wow. That was your first time coming to Japan? With as, the, as with Odyssey? As, yeah, uh, with, with, as an em employee in, in, in starting my career, right? You wanted to be an employee now, so you weren't running it? No, no, I was, I was an employee. I, I okay, was right. early in my career. Um, but what I was, was your position when you came? I mean, what was I it? was heading sales, trying to get companies like Itochu to use our factories to make garments for their brands. So how did that go? It was challenging. It was challenging. Yeah, because I wasn't an expert either on the garment side nor in Japanese business, and I didn't have any relationships because I was young in my career. So all three, um, all three kind of assets you normally need to have to be successful. Um, weren't there for me. Uh, but again, you know, early in your career, you're there to learn and you're, to you're trying to grow yourself and, and sales is certainly a way to cut your teeth. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's something you, know, you gotta wake up and, and really focus on and, and not be afraid to make mistakes and keep trying. And you know, I, I recommend to any young kid and I put my kids in that situation is start in sales now. Yeah, get that effort going, learn how to pick up the phone, not to be afraid of rejection. Uh, keep standing back up once you get knocked down because it's going to happen to you time and time again in every aspect of life. Isn't that true? Let me ask you this, Ken. Now I'm going to try to get into those questions that I'm trying to get into. Think throughout your life. It doesn't have to be that time. Anytime you want to, 
what was one of the biggest challenges that you faced up till now? How old are you now? You're 57. 57. Up till now, what's one of the biggest challenges first, and how did it affect you, and what did you do to solve it? Soon thereafter, my career evolved. Odyssey went bankrupt, and I started a, a new career, and I, I, I joined, or I, I put my heart into getting into the sports business. And I just cold called, and I sent a letter into IMG in, in Cleveland. And you know, to this day, many people say you're one of the few senior guys at IMG at the time, uh, ultimately what I ended up um, being promoted to, that came through the HR department, because most people there are there's a lot of nepotism there where there's there's you know whether it's sons of ceos or brothers of tennis players um, that's a lot of people that were in the in the company at the time but i was very fortunate that um i had one line of expertise which was licensing which started when i was at odyssey i didn't know what licensing was you know we'd go and license the north face to a japanese manufacturer I said people pay you for that you know i couldn't understand the idea of and starter was a big brand at the time and and Starter was big with U.S. sports licenses, but they're also licensing the Starter S and Star logo all around the world. I said, wow, this is interesting, getting paid for allowing another company to use your trademarks. So I had some experience in there with Odyssey, and I parlayed that in the licensing department, IMG, where IMG represented Major League Baseball outside the United States. They represented Wimbledon, British Open, Arnold Palmer, the umbrella mark. So, Arnold, so IMG represented the brand owners for those trademarks. And so the job that I took because I understood licensing was selling those trademarks to licensees in Asia. So I was very fortunate. I came into IMG in a very unique specialized department, which is not your traditional media rights or sponsorship sales or athlete representation, but licensing. And I proved to be successful in doing it. Again, going back to the sales, I would literally fly into Singapore or Bangkok, open up a phone book and call companies and, and literally you know, going first means I was very fortunate that IMG, because their other businesses, had a platform and a brand. Um, so that would get me in the door, but then I would go and try to pitch licenses. Um, you know, and I sold Major League Baseball to Matahari Department Stores, an Indonesian department store, on the New York Yankees logo. So, you know, it was little things like that that, again, getting your nose to the grinder and just picking up the phone and... and and not being afraid to make calls and, 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 and finding out what you're deficient in and making materials yourself to help, the, help you pitch the next client, you know, something you, you didn't have before the last round and, and just bettering yourself and, and um, learning about your product and making materials to allow you to help you sell it better. That was your biggest challenge? Your um, biggest challenge? That well, I think ultimately my, my life challenge was, was when, when I switched jobs. That was how I got into sports. Mm -hmm. uh, but after that... Um, I left IMG to join um, IMG's rival, which was a company called ISL. Mm -hmm. So ISL has been in the news in recent years because of the Olympic scandals and, and this and that, um, the, the bribery scandals and, and right or wrong. You know, I, I don't know how ISL at the senior levels was involved in all that, but ISL had the World Cup sponsorship rights. They created the Olympic top program, and I joined that, that company from IMG in 1989, 1999. Um, in preparation for the 2002 FIFA World Cup in Japan and Korea. So I was recruited by a, a friend who was working at ISL and they said, you know, we, we need somebody to run the office there in preparation for the World Cup. So I said, okay, that's interesting, but I don't want to do an event job. Does this have a career or some longevity to it? And they said, well, Dentsu's backing out of their 49%. The, the Dossler sisters who owned Adi Dossler, mm -hmm. her, their father, um, were 
pursuing an IPO strategy for, for ISL? And would I like to join the company now that they're buying back Dentsu's 49% share to 10%? Said, okay, if it means running the office and having a career. So I, I took on that opportunity. Had the FIFA World Cup, you know, coming in, in three years' time. Exciting period. Um, but ISL ends up going bankrupt. They um, invested in Brazilian football clubs. They bought championship auto racing, kart racing. Uh, they had the nine events called the Tennis Master Series underneath the Grand Slams where they paid a billion dollars over, over 10 years for those nine events. Um, they were in a spending spree in order to diversify the portfolio away from just soccer and Olympics. Um, you know, a year and a half after joining, they go bankrupt right before the World Cup. I was fortunate in that Korea and Japan were the only two offices ISL had to keep running, but FIFA took us over. So basically, we had the event to deliver in 14 months' time. And so I basically had a runway where I knew I wasn't going to have a job 14 plus six months you know, after the event. The challenge was, you know, really making a conscious decision. Newly married with a child, bought a brand new place, and I think maybe you recall Daikanyama address was the newest condo at the time, bought a place there. My son's health wasn't well, so I had three of these pressures, of ch child's health, home, home pressure, um, work pressure, and again, you know, a, a new mortgage. And, and um, that was probably the most challenging time of my life was I knew I wasn't going to have a job yet. I have all these mm -hmm. financial pressures and the health pressures, and, and I had to make a choice. Do I try to find a job? Do I start my own business? If I start my own business, do I run it as an entrepreneur, not speaking fluent? reading, writing Japanese, having one assistant and translator, or do I make myself look bigger, have four or five staff, but have that risk and expense? Um, I knew I didn't want to end up going the salary route again. I knew I wanted to start my own business. I knew that if I was working in my house with an assistant that I would never have the chance to grow the scale that I wanted to. So um, I took the most risky route, and even though ultimately it proved successful, going through those three to five years where my spouse had her own business, I was starting my own business. I was very fortunate in that I was laid on rent three or four months at a time, a couple times, but my landlord supported me. Never laid on payroll with my four or five staff, um, but that was the biggest challenge of my life was going through the financial pressures with everything on the line, borrowing money, um, you know, all of those challenges that you hear about and waking up at sweats at three and four in the morning for, you know, a couple times a week when, when rent is due. When did you finally come up for air and feel like, finally I can breathe now? How, I mean, and what had you done to get yourself to that point? Because you're deep down in the water. Yeah. You can see the, <laughs> the surface up there, but it looks like it's a far, far, far away. Yeah. When did you break the surface and come up and go, and how'd you get up there? Yeah, you know, I think, and I share this with, with young kids when I speak to them about mm -hmm. you know, pursuing your passion careers, is you have to do something that you're, you want to do, so it's fun to wake up in the morning. But even with all that pressure, you, know, you have to evolve. And I think every entrepreneur goes through that. You have to shift, you have to pivot, you have to see where the opportunity is. And it's not a matter of, of ultimately pursuing what you want to do, because that's always in the back of your mind. Bankruptcies don't happen with, with with profitable businesses only or unprofitable business, they happen because of cash flow, right? So you could be profitable, project that you're gonna, but if you don't have that cash flow to get through those next three, six months. And so that was the thing we pivoted and I was able to get enough and scramble enough to shift and move and do deal here to get us through the next three months to get where and- Well, take me to that. That's the part I wanna go yeah. to because you can talk that, you can say it, but 
a kid can't tell what you're talking about. A child wouldn't understand. I mean, mm -hmm. let's say a young man that's going through it. What did you? What was a pivot for you? That phone, a phone call, or did you actually have friends that came to your aid, and someone said, "Here's the cash you need to get you through till then. Don't worry about getting it back right now." Or no, you know, I, I started as a sponsorship sales agency and and licensing agency. So we were representing WWE at the time, and we we're just trying to do small deals. And 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 I set up the business actually where. The guys that I brought on to stay with me, I said I brought three or four guys on. I said, listen, I'm going to arrange a good payout from the company, from FIFA at the time, to make sure that you're taken care of for the next six months. So I, I did things that were appropriate because that's obligatory from a financial standpoint when you're closing down a company. But I wanted them to know that, that, that I was pushing for them and getting them maximum, that, you know, believe in me because we're going to start something new. So that was a bit of a, a bridge um, in the beginning. And then... As we're representing WWE, trying to get licensing deals done, um, I realized that that was taking longer than 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 it was going to allow me to make it. So we ended up um, finding a very unique opportunity, just as ISL had done with FIFA, where they secured the rights for media and sponsorship sales. All of a sudden, I saw an opportunity, and I had visited Europe a couple times during this period on on personal on, on personal issues. But I went and visited the International Baseball Federation. So the IBAF, International Baseball Federation, is based in Lausanne, Switzerland. It was run at, a, run at the time by an Italian named Aldo Notari. Um, and the general secretary was a Spanish guy. So although everyone thinks, excuse me, the baseball awareness and power is obviously in the USA or Japan, all the international federations that are global in nature and want to be in the Olympics in this time Baseball had just been included in the Olympics. But every event they were doing, their world championships, and they had what they call a baseball World Cup, um, were run out of this federation in Switzerland, in Lausanne. So I visited with them and I said, listen, um, I'd like to buy out the rights because the model that was being used in football, soccer at the time, and other sports was that the organization would sell global sponsorships. Um, but in this case with baseball, because they were so small, they would grant the rights to a LOC, a local organizing committee, and that LOC would not get funding from the federation but had to monetize itself. So every event they would do, um, let's say the, the qualifying for Asian positions for the Olympics would be run, all the commercial aspects would be concentrated in for just that one event in that local organizing committee. Well, how'd you find out all that? How'd you find that? Wait, how'd you know all this? Well, because I just worked with FIFA for the World Cup, so I knew their structure and I knew how that was successful, whereas baseball and, and these other smaller sports, they're, they're run as one-offs. And so the funding doesn't come from the federation, but from the organizers who bid to organize it, then they have to monetize. You already knew this. I figured it out after talking to, to the IBAF. Okay. So and okay. so I went there and I said, listen, instead of granting the rights to the organizing committee, why don't we pay you and you reserve it for us? And, and then I'm able to work out a deal directly with the federation versus the organizing committee. You pay them with what? Well, that was... That was <laughs> Wait, come on, let's get down. I, mean, I want to get down the nitty-gritty. Yeah, so that, 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 that's, that, that's where <laughs> I found the opportunity, where I had enough credibility because I'd been in the sports business for a while, um, but frankly, I didn't have the money. So I guaranteed half of what I knew I could sell it at and I went and did a deal selling the rights to Hakuhodo before I even had the rights from the IBAF. And I was able to, well, actually, I don't, I don't say that. I, I, before I, I, 
I managed the cash flows in order to sell and secure money, which was greater than what I had to pay the organet, more than what I had to pay the federation. How much time difference? Um, about six months. So what happened was Beijing was coming in 2008, and so the qualifying event was 2007. Um, I went around 2000, probably four or five, secured the rights, and I was able to, again, back end. Okay, wait. You, se you secured the rights without any cash, just a promise? Mm -hmm. Just a promise, yeah. They didn't check? They didn't check, no. Because had they checked, you wouldn't have had it? I wouldn't have had it. Okay. Not at that time. I, I, obviously, I, I basically... I so, think the, so you sold yourself. They trusted you. They liked you. So in other words, if you didn't have salesman skills and they didn't like your appearance, the way you spoke, you'd been fini. Absolutely. Because yeah. you had if nothing they, else. If they had just asked me for a, a bank guarantee <laughs> on saying. the money that, that I was promising them, <laughs> right. yeah, I would have been toast. been done. Yeah. So you basically had to use you. The yeah. thing, what else do you have? You yeah. had nothing else. <laughs> Thank you. I never thought of it that way, but certainly, yeah. Isn't that the truth? Because yeah. you had nothing. You didn't pull up in a Ferrari. You had nothing other than you when you came there. Well, I had credibility because, again, I had run the FIFA office. But that's true. I had, I had yeah. And, well, and, and the other properties around it. So, again, we started as a licensing business representation, trying to do WWE. Baseball comes in. Um, I have credibility from my, my past life in sports. Then, again, another any, pivot. Was there anyone they called, like a friend that you knew, if they called him, you'd say, he's good. You see mm. what I'm saying? I just, it's hard to, to see someone that you know from nowhere and knowing nothing about you unless there was someone that you knew that knew them that they really trusted. No, I think... I think some, you understand what I'm saying? Well, again, I was running the FIFA World Cup office in Japan, so my credibility was high, and I, I again, they're European, they're, they're Italian and Spanish guys there in Switzerland. I'm going to Switzerland because that's where you know, the FIFA headquarters are. So as a professional, I, I, I had position in the market um, and, and I was going there on, on FIFA business and I said, I'm starting my new agency. So I think I had the professional credibility, but not the, not the, or the, the personal credibility, not, not necessarily the professional, because then you, I'll start my own company when I first approached them. But ultimately with that, with that baseball deal, Again, selling the rights to Olympic qualifying, which is quite meaningful in Asia, where in other markets it's a given the U.S. is going to qualify. Qualification events aren't that valuable. But when it comes to European football or Olympic qualifying, um, it, it is quite valuable. And, and certainly, you know, in, in Japan, Taiwan, Korea, baseball is a big sport. So that's basically we sold the rights to Hakuhodo, and Hakuhodo was selling it the rights on to um, the Japanese market and then I did another deal in Korea so we made a nice chunk of change there which gave me breathing room and then what I did after that was I think if you go back in time if you can remember the three carriers it was Vodafone, KDDI and, and, and Docomo at the time each had their own network uh, uh, it was the flip phones and and you had to get on the front of the deck and they were just getting into putting content so again 15 years ago you would take two minutes to download 15 seconds not the other way around right now it takes whatever, three seconds to download, two minutes. Um, but at the time, there was what we call Koshki mobile sites, Koshki official. Mm -hmm. And on all three of those carriers, you'd have to lobby and try to get your technical background support to mesh up with each of those different networks. We had guys doing that side, but what we did was we, we secured the licenses for the official mobile sites for 
WWE, UFC, NFL, ESPN, PGA, LPGA, Syria, and we did a bicycle. I think we had eight or nine sites, and we were the official NBA site. So people would pay us 315 yen a month, I think those who were here back then remember, and then you'd have access to official content and video content. In the end, not that many people were looking at the video content, but that was our marketing edge. We'd say we're official and you could see live or near live news and highlights online. And we never had, never got MLB, but again, you wanted those properties that were successful and interesting enough where people would pay you, right? But you didn't want the news to be ubiquitous because then they could get the highlights for free over the news services. They could just open up the paper. So baseball was, even though MLB was hugely popular at the time, it wasn't necessarily a differentiator because people know the results without being a member. If you, if you wanted to find out what happened on, on Raw or SmackDown, you'd have to go to the WWE official site. NBA wasn't as big 15 years ago as it is now. So we had people willing to pay us that $3 a month for that news and information and of course, the video content, which again was a marketing edge, which people weren't necessarily using. But, and so that business was ultimately what added value to my business because that was a real cash flow business that wasn't a one-off trade in, in respect to um, media rights or sponsorship sales. So that was, um, and it was a differentiator because now as sports marketing in Japan and the market, um, it made a difference that we had all these big international brands. And to your point, what was the edge that sold us in? One, of course, Again, the background that we had already done with baseball. But once we got the NBA, then everything else changed because then the credibility is there. WWE we already had to deal with because we already had that earlier relationship. But then once we had WWE, NBA, it was easy to get other properties because our credibility level was already there. Mm -hmm. So that was also a big learning, knowing that you need that one kind of linchpin property right. and that could set the stage And did you already know success. that? Did you already feel that? You didn't know it until I you got it. I didn't know it until I did it, yeah. And once you got it, then everybody well, said, no, you easy. got that, yeah. Right. Absolutely, yeah, that was a big learning, yeah. But again, the, the pivoting, knowing that you, you see an opportunity, grab it, don't be afraid um, to go after something. And then, uh, and then I was fortunate that I had a team behind me that could execute. How many people? <clears throat> Ultimately, SMJ Sports Market Japan grew to be about 11 people. I'm talking about right then. Oh. That time. Oh, we had, yeah, when you guys were sitting people, on needles. Four or five yeah. people, yeah. We, <laughs> That's right. And then after that, you know, people wanted to come in. Of course, yeah. Because well, we're a sports listen, company. Whenever you got something good, everybody wants to be on the bandwagon. Yeah. And I was fortunate that, you know, we'd make everyone come on as interns. They basically, we'd say you could work. We'd give them transportation and lunch money. That's say, it. Yeah, that's for how it. long? For how long? Usually about six months. Because I want to do that with this. Yeah. Then, if they if they make it through the six month and, and they weed themselves out, it wasn't me weeding them out. It was the guys that they're working for and their colleagues that basically people know whether they want to stay or are recognized to be strong enough players that they're adding value that they will stay. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So that, that was really a, I mean, you were doing a hell of a lot of pivoting then. You could have been considered a ballerina at that time, huh? Yeah, we were, <laughs> and at the time, I was, you know, again, Ines, you know, uh, yeah. she, she had her Miss Universe Japan business. and That was all that time? Yeah, all that, and yeah, that's why we were under huge oh, pressure. And the kids, the kids were young, and, you know, we're really lucky to have a great nanny that, that would pick them up. So we'd take care of them in the morning, drop them off at school, and nanny would pick them up at three feed bathe eat feed them and you know we get home you know outside of work if there wasn't other things that we had to do as well because there's a lot of entertaining that you have to do and being out in the market yeah we 
we're very fortunate to have a very strong and uh, supportive nanny to help us during that tough mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. um, but Ines's business was taken off with um, Miss Universe Japan. And I think she had a tough growth period too for three or four years um, where she was changing the concept, developing it, but she was doing all the business and I couldn't help her. Then all of a sudden, once I got over the hump where I could hire more people at SMJ, she hired us to do her business. So now, operationally, she didn't have to do sponsorship sales. She didn't have to service the clients. She concentrated on developing the girls and delivering the show. And then she went off like that. Wow. But that helped you as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. we were both, you know, the, our thing, respectively yeah. that we were both owned our own, res our own individual businesses. Mm -hmm. And we used the same office. Um, so we saved on costs. And then knock on wood, you know, we s I saw the Internet coming. And I knew this mobile official business was going to be hard to protect. Right. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, to sell the business to Yoshimoto Kogyo. Um, in 2009. Were you happy with what you sold it for? Yeah, you know, it, it, the idea then was to grow their sports business and become um, a, a bigger part of a, a bigger business and, and us fuel them and they fuel us. Um, ultimately, they're a very domestic company. It was challenging to integrate in, on their side. Um, but they ultimately got, I think, nine staff you know, they had one English speaker, the CFO before that, who was always very supportive of myself. Um, Thunderbird graduate as well. Nakata-san, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but they ended up taking, you know, and, and having those nine staff in their company. And, oh, they, and so, so that, they that absorbed proved, your people. Yeah. That's good. After a year, yeah, they, they, we want to stay independent in Meguro. And before that, in Motesando, uh, we had a great office, but uh, ultimately moved into the Shinjuku um, Shogakko. Um, and then Ines stayed independent until she sold her business later that same year. Um, and then we both, uh, we moved to Singapore in 2011, two years after both of us sold our business in nine. Oh, wow. Yeah. So where does that find you today? Where are you now? In a that very was, happy place called Honolulu, Hawaii, back okay. home. Yeah. You like being home? Yeah. Yeah. How long have you been home now? Since COVID, so March. Oh, so you've been yeah, four two, years two, almost, two, yeah. Two and a half years? Well, almost COVID three, was three COVID was three years. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, almost so, three years. Yeah. Almost three years. Oh, so you went during COVID? <clears throat> well, actually, well, we had moved to Singapore, um, 2000, not 2000. It was going to be uh, two, 2019 was when COVID started 2019, well, 2020. Yeah, 2020 March yeah, is, is, is when, when I moved when back. Started, so yeah. um, I, well, I'd come back, I, I, after Singapore, I moved back to Hawaii where Noah graduated, and then, um, came back to Tokyo to head up sales here with IMG where I started my career. So I started in 94, came back, I'd say, was it 2000? Um, no, 90, 99? No, 19, sorry. Okay, it doesn't matter. 19, okay. came back in 19, and then uh, COVID hit a year and a half later, yeah, yeah. So now I've been back uh, in Honolulu almost three years, um, and uh, yeah, loving my life back home now. What are your dreams from this time on? You're 57. 57. You'll probably live for another 43 <laughs> years. You're probably maybe 43 or maybe more, okay? What do you see Ken Berger doing this time? What's your big dream? Where, where do you, I mean, life is good now. You've been through the challenges that made you tough and feel good, and you say, oh, damn, you don't die from all that stuff, well, even though you might have wanted to. Mm -hmm. What's your big dream now? So much of the last 
10 years has been focused on the boys. You know, like, like your four boys, I have two great boys, 22 and 21. And when we moved to Singapore, they're in middle school. And, you know, knock on wood, um, I was really fortunate to have the free time to spend time with them during their middle school years. I'm That's picking good. them up every day from school, um, taking them to their soccer practice and their jujitsu practice. So I was really lucky to be able to spend uh, quality time with them. You know, when they're younger, it's tough to really get a lot of value as a dad. When they're older, they want to fo focus on their friends and school and sports. So those middle years are really, again, not planned. It turned out that way, and, and I think, I think they they enjoyed my time with them, and I certainly did with with uh, on the flip side. Um, I was lucky at that time when they started high school. I, I ended up running the UFC in Asia, so I did that for for a couple years until Endeavor, who owns IMG, the company I used to work for ended up buying the UFC and closing up Brazil, Singapore, and London. <clears throat> and that was, that was a bit of time where um, it was a tough time for me. Um, but and that's when I moved to Hawaii the first time before I ended up coming back to IMG Tokyo for a couple years before COVID. Before COVID. Um, but that was a great time too. And they ended up now becoming huge fans of mixed martial arts. And that's why they started their BJJ um, athletic career and, and they continue to um, practice that now your son yeah my son so mm -hmm. I think you know my dream was always to be a dad that was present which I didn't have and I was fortunate enough to be able to have that time again not by design but um, ultimately when having that flexibility I was really able to take advantage of it and focus on it so moving forward you know I know that that they have only a couple years left. They're, they're, they're finishing up their college and graduate degrees now. So I've made an effort to spend a lot of time with them now that I can and now that now during the period in which that they have the flexibility because I know once they start their careers or they have significant others, there'll be less opportunity to do so. So I think over the, the, the last couple years and over the next 18 months before they finish school, um, I just was with my elder son at the World Cup in Doha. So we, you know, we went to the last seven matches there. Um, we take spring holiday for skiing together every year. Um, I'm, again, fortunate that, that we have time and flexibility to spend a week over Thanksgiving. That's our big fam burger family get together. So, you know, a week in the, in the spring and the fall, and then hopefully um, if they're not doing internships, we will continue to do our, our summer holidays in France. So I think the family time with, with the boys is probably on the top of my list. And then moving forward, as I move towards 60, um, and as they move on in their career, um, I think, like all of us, you know, we all enjoy traveling and seeing new things, and that continues to be my interest and passion is going to new places. So this past year, I took a cruise for the first time across the Mediterranean, um, spent some time in Saudi Arabia and, and, and Doha, Dubai, Abu Dhabi this past week. Um, so I think exploring new markets and new places um, is proving to be, or continue to be my passion and interest. Do you think you, you'll make a business out of it? I mean, a business out of it? Um, no, I think that's, that's on the personal side. The business part, um, I'm very fortunate to have a great project that I'm working on in Hawaii. Um, it's pulling back on to my licensing experience, but as well as my history and heritage of growing up in Hawaii. There's an iconic personality uh, called Duke Kahanamoku. He's the founder of the sport of surfing, former gold medalist and world record holder in swimming, a man of color 
who suffered a lot of the same indignities that Jim Thorpe and these other mm -hmm. um, athletes who'd come back from the Olympics as, as darker-skinned men. They'd be heroes, yet when they come home, they wouldn't be as welcomed in the real world as they are in, in the media. In their world, you mean? Yeah. Because the world is the real world. That's well, fair <laughs> enough, yeah. yeah. So um, we, we've licensed a documentary, which has just come out. Um, it's been well-received. We're in discussions to um, <clears throat> tie up with a studio on a feature film. Again, that'll be a couple years down the road. Um, but that's where I'm focusing my efforts uh, is on Duke and developing his IP. A um, couple other projects we're doing outside, the, outside of the theatrical version. Um, the WSL World Surf League is going to be naming their trophy. Uh, the WSL Duke Hanmoko Championship Trophy for both men and for women. You, you set that up? You yeah, that, that's been a lot of the work behind the scenes, that's yeah. Good, that's and good. then we're working with the state legislature and Senate to get the governor to sign off on a Duke Hanmoko license plate. You know, he was in the <laughs> 1912 yeah. Antwerp Games and, and I think continued to the 30s. So he participated in four Olympic Games and, and five, five medals. Wow, that is beautiful. Ken, the way that I like to end the podcast is asking this one final question. Yes, sir. Knowing what you know now, you've been on the planet for 57 years, and I think the first five years don't count, so let's say 52 years, knowing what's going up. Let's say you could go back in time, and you could see the young Ken. What time would you go back to, and what advice would you give this young Ken? I could frame a lot of the questions that you've posed to me uh, today and look at it through my boy's eyes. And I think that's the one thing that I already see myself telling them is not to be afraid and not to think, not to be, not to think that you get so ashamed and you get so worried that you think everyone's looking at you and every kid is very self-conscious of that, is I think not to be self-conscious and not to worry about what other people think and just do you. And I think um, pursue your dreams that, you know, again, I'm, I'm very lucky in that many parents ask me to talk to their children because many children want to work in sport. So by definition, I've, I've over the you know, last decade um, had many lunches or coffees with, with younger children and guys and kids that are similar in, in age to my, my children and younger. And I think that's what I would say is, is, like we all learn, I think it's pretty common, follow your passion. If you, if, you, if you enjoy something and you're good at it, then ultimately you'll be able to find some way to manage it and make it into a career. Yeah. Ken, thank you so much. Pleasure. Really Fantastic. thanks. I appreciate talking with you. Thank Les. you so much. All of you watching this podcast, make sure you press like and subscribe. And remember, it's all unknown, so continue to reach for the stars because you're too blessed to be stressed.